Hello and welcome. I'm Charles Keaton, editor of Alliance, the magazine and website which specializes in philanthropy worldwide. Our mission is simple, to help philanthropy do the most good by giving it the attention and scrutiny it deserves. Today I'm joined by Dan Corey and Paul Streets. Dan is the CEO of New Philanthropy Capital, a leading philanthropy think tank. And Paul Streets directs the highly regarded corporate fund of the Lloyds Bank Foundation for England and Wales. Dan and Paul recently joined forces to pen what they called a provocation paper. In it, they suggested that grant makers must learn new tricks. And there's a debate on the hashtag more than grants to hear the reaction to their provocation paper. Simply put, the value of foundation grants to the voluntary sector at 6.5 billion now exceeds grants made by government. That figure alone makes foundations a potentially powerful force in society. But our self-styled provocateurs argue that foundations are actually falling short in two main areas. First, foundations are not giving to grantees enough of what they need, core funding in particular, but also specialist staff and office space. And second, they argue, foundations need to be far bolder in speaking out and acting as agents of change. So today, we're debating exactly what does it take to make a foundation effective. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Charles. And uh, hello, Paul. Hi, Charles. Now, if I can start with you, uh, Paul, um, thank you for joining us. What, in your view, is it so important about core funding to charities? And why do you think core funding isn't provided maybe more than it actually is at the moment? It's pretty critical to charities, particularly at the moment, where in a UK context, charities are so squeezed in terms of government funding. So there's no spare cash. There's no unrestricted money. So charities see core funding as being unrestricted. They can do with it what they will. What we find is charities up and down the country who can get money for the sexy stuff, the pilot projects, the innovation that other funders seem to be obsessed with. They can't get money to pay the rent, to pay the chief executive salary, to do the really fundamental things that keep the organisation going. So for us, and we know that, charities really value that unrestricted money that enables them then to use the funds as they wish. And I guess the reason for that, I think arguably a lot of philanthropists are too vested in the model of the old. They, they felt they were the champions of innovation. I would say we fundamentally fund innovative organisations. We need to support the leadership to be innovative with core costs. And are you optimistic that efforts by yourselves and other philanthropy bodies to call for more core funding is going to yield more resources? I think people are listening, but I'll give you a cameo of, of an example of this. I was at a charity in South Wales in the Clonetli, a women's aid organisation. This charity turns of about £900,000. They get £25,000 a year from us. I said, why are you bothering? You know, you're big enough not to worry. And the, the chief exec's view was that 25000 for us is gold dust because you're funding my salary. Without that, we couldn't function. Nobody else will fund it. And in terms of Lloyd Banks Foundation's uh, work on core funding, you think about core funding in a kind of quite tiered way, different types of funding. It's not just a one-size-fits-all model. Could you say a little bit more about we've got, what it involves? Uh, thanks, Charles. I mean, we've got a particular model that we'll probably explore as part of this because it plays very much into think piece. But our view is we have a triangle operating model, if you like, and it starts with grant making. Grant making is the core of what we do. Added to that, we need to look at the organisations that we're funding and saying, what do they need beyond the grant? So we do a lot of work around Funder Plus, Grants Plus, which is targeted on their specific needs, not provided by us, but commissioned by us from third parties and provided to them as a, as a customer, if you like. And the third piece of the triangle is the influencing piece, which is how do we use what we learn and know from what we fund to leverage greater change? And on that influencing piece, that leads actually very well on to some of the observations you've made, Dan Corey, at New Philanthropy Capital. You argue in this provocation paper that foundations should really start to become agents of change, not just funders of it. Can you say a bit more about what you mean by that? 
Yeah, I mean, in many ways, Grantmaker is making choices about who they give grants to. So in a very clear way, they are trying to create some kind of change. They may not be so aware of it. They may just say, look, all we do as a Grantmaker is we find some decent charities in the sort of field we're interested in and we fund them. But the choices they make are already starting to try and produce some change. And the argument is that will get you so far. It, often you'll end up funding uh, charities uh, and organisations who are trying to, trying to meet some need in some ways. If you think about the fact that you are trying to create change, then you've got a lot of more tools as a grant maker beyond just giving the grants. And one of those, of course, is to use your power, your leverage, your knowledge, your research, all the rest of it, to, in different ways, trying to influence the way the world works. And that can be by getting behind what the grantees are arguing for and giving them sort of extra amplification. It can be, if you're a bit braver, you yourself can, on the basis of what you're learning from all the grantees, you can come and, and speak out in public or sort of lobbying, uh, trying to influence uh, policy decision makings. So there's a lot of things you can do and all of those ultimately can have more profound impact in terms of creating positive social change than just giving grants on their own. Mm. And just taking the latter part, the foundations that aren't simply supporting grantees to be able to advocate more effectively but actually assuming the role and responsibility for advocacy, that's potentially quite controversial. What kind of response have you had to that proposal that's in the research? It is controversial. I mean, arguably it shouldn't be, but it's controversial, I think, for a, a few reasons. I mean, some of which one can understand and maybe someone can't. One, quite frankly, if you put your head above the parapet and you campaign for something, some people might try and shoot you down. A lot of foundations would prefer to keep in the background and not take that risk. I think that's a shame because I think as grant makers with a kind of secure income, you're in a better position sometimes to advocate on behalf of your grantees and be a bit louder than the grantees themselves who have to maybe keep relationships with, uh, with other organisations, particularly in government. The, the other one is a kind of legitimate thing. Is it reasonable for you just because you've got a lot of money as a grant maker you're going to give away for you to kind of push your own views? What's your view on, on that? Well in fact you are pushing your own view in the decisions of which grantees you fund quite frankly so you're already interfering. So if you're, if you're unhappy if you like about the rich and the powerful influencing the world perhaps you shouldn't be a grant maker or you should sort of grant make in some incredibly neutral way. So I think you're already part of the game. I think the crucial thing if you as it were to give you some legitimacy it's clearly not democratic legitimacy but is what you're advocating rooted in the experiences of grassroots, perhaps what your grantees are finding out. Is it rooted in evidence? So you can point to something, it wasn't just your prejudice that you fancied something or other and were using your money to lobby for it. It was because the evidence was pointing that way. And those things do give you legitimacy, even if it's got to be careful, you don't have that democratic legitimacy that clearly elected people do. And Paul, in your experience at Lloyds Bank Foundation, where you have worked with sectors to advance particular causes, I'm thinking particularly in domestic and sexual abuse, has that been your experience that when you've actually been able to work with the sector commissioned research, developed an evidence base, you've had more legitimacy and more impact with your work. Perhaps you can give some examples. I mean, that's the only thing we've ever done. All of what we do is echo and amplify what we hear from the ground. So our whole philosophy has been to commission research, to work with, for example, you mentioned the domestic violence and, and sexual violence. We've worked with Women's Aid, we've worked with Safe Lives, who are the two leading organisations in Britain who are doing work in that area. So we design the programme, we fund a number of our members. I would say, actually, it's not just an option for us. I don't think it's just an option for funders either. It's an imperative. We are failing in our duty unless we reflect back what we hear on the ground, here and now, to the state in terms of domestic violence, and it makes a difference. And the only reason we can do that is because we're reflecting back what we hear. And I would say part of the responsibility is because our knowledge is immediate. We are funding here and now on the ground. Unlike the umbrella bodies that produce great data, actually all that data is two years old. We're finding live what is happening on the ground. We have an absolute responsibility to reflect that back. Providing that we're not speaking in my words, we're using my mouth to echo and amplify what we hear on the ground. Mm. Well, so it seems to 
from what you're saying from both of you that actually legitimacy isn't a concern. But let me put to you. Can another... I just give you an example, Charles? Uh, you, you asked me for an example. Because you asked me for an example. I think sure. it's a very good one of how this can work. And this is a very practical example. One of the things we've done in working with a number of partners, of which Safe Lives is one, this is one of the major domestic violence charities in Britain, is to do some work around perpetrators of domestic violence, deeply contentious area. As a consequence of that work, our million pounds investment has secured three and a half million from the police and crime commissioners. We're beginning to change policy in the Home Office. Had we not made that investment, that would never have happened. That's a very good example of practical leverage. This is not being adversarial with government. This is saying to government, we have put some funding. It's something that appears to work here and government has followed with its own money. That's the kind of leverage I think we need to be doing. So what do you think is holding your fellow foundations and fellow CEOs of other foundations back from doing more of this? I think there is a kind of false humility. There is that, well, we can't speak on behalf of others and I completely would agree with that. But we're not going to go sit in a darkened room and decide what we're going to fund, what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on what we know. There is, for some, I guess, lower profile, some of the family foundations don't want high profile. And I guess there's a capacity question. You know, it takes effort. We have, we are not lean by foundation standards in terms of our resourcing. We're not fat either. I mean, we spend about 25 million. I've got 35 staff. I ran a charity of our size with 300 staff. So could a concern be, I mean, less money for the front line and more money going into your own staff to produce the kind of research and evidence base that's needed for you to be able to advocate? Do the maths. Grant making is never going to be the answer. Our grant making could be 10 times the size and would be a drop in the ocean. Think about what the domestic violence costs in the UK and think about everything that funders put into that sector. It is tiny. I describe ourselves as a pimple on a huge bubble. And if we can use that pimple to infect the rest, if you want to use the analogy, that's our role as an influencing body. And the fact we can do that based on knowledge of what's happening on the ground makes it very real. I think in a sense what another, maybe not the words that Paul would use, but Paul's kind of talking about system change. Can you somehow make the system work differently so it creates less people in need? And can you, as a grant maker, you're getting all this knowledge from your grantees. Can you use that to provoke system change, which is kind of like preventative work, trying to stop the flow of never ending? And that's quite a difficult thing, I think. Some funders like just giving out the grants well each year, that they all went to decent charities, nobody ran away with the money, there was some kind of effect is enough. Struggling with system change is too much for them. But Paul's absolutely right. If you really want to make a difference, if you really want to, as it were, amplify what your cash can achieve, you do need to get into this. One other thing I'd say, Charles, as well, is I think this does vary by country. Obviously, Paul and I are kind of embedded in the kind of UK world, where you do get this humility, this slight reluctance. What is the role of charitable foundations and philanthropy relative to the sort of democratic state and so forth? Lots of other countries, it's much more usual that someone who has made a lot of money, be a philanthropist, or run a foundation has a particularly strong view about something and will advocate for it in all sorts mm. of ways. We, we feel uncomfortable with that in the UK mm. and I think in Europe generally. In the US it's it's always been a feature and there's people on all sides of almost every argument and often they're not that evidence-based. They just have a belief, you know, that for instance, uh, I don't know, the whole legal system has tended one way and they're going to train up a lot of people to try and push it the other way for no reason except ideology. We don't have that in the UK. We don't really have but that in Europe. isn't that a potential risk that there will be more ideologically or politically driven philanthropy and some of that advocacy might actually be to advocate for causes that you feel are opposed to what you may stand for. So, for example, you may have philanthropists that might want to roll back same-sex marriage laws or might want to advance pro-life campaigns, which may be very important for some but may be offensive to others. Are you willing to allow that level of pluralism and debate? It's a a totally fair point, Charles. I think the fact that those who... if, If we have extremes inequality of wealth, those with lots of wealth will end up trying to, for good and bad reasons, trying to influence the way we run our societies will always be there, whether they were doing it through philanthropy or some other way. So we've always got that. I think, you know, in a sense, what one always wants to try and say to people who have got this wealth, they're going to give it away, which is a great thing. 
the more that they're rooted in people's grassroots experience, the more they're rooted in evidence, the less that's a problem. Of course, there will be people. I mean, we've had a recent example, interesting example in the UK with George Soros putting some money into a particular Mm -hmm. side of the Brexit debate. And a lot of people have said, that's great. And another lot of people said, this is terrible. What an evil man. Um, I think the key thing there was that it's very transparent. And in fact, the story emerged that it was all kind of secretive and so forth. Being very transparent, what they're funding is absolutely conditioned, if it were, for doing it. If he was putting in three billion or something to fund something, I'd start to get worried. And I don't think in the UK and probably the European context, people don't quite behave like that because we have a cultural norms. Of course, there's other countries where those cultural norms don't apply. So and you part might of your worry concern about is more. the amount of money as opposed to the choice of uh, direction of spending. There's always an issue about scale, isn't there? Just about in everything. So potentially you'd be comfortable with one donor giving a certain amount to campaign to support charities or causes that are pro-Brexit and others that are anti-Brexit as part of that pluralism of debate. I'm not going to stop people using their wealth in ways they want. I want them to be transparent about it. We don't want to sort of bias the debate. Government always has to think about these sort of things. But unless we're going to say, sorry, here's a list of things we think you can put your money into and here's a list of things and beliefs that you can't, we'd be in trouble. I mean, some people think a lot of money going into supporting certain religions and so forth is a a bit of a strange thing, that it biases the way the country develops. Others think it's terrific. I think you've got to be very careful to get into those minefields. Well, Paul, you've been listening very intently to what Dan has been saying, nodding at some moments and maybe uh, looking a bit more pensive (laughs) at others. Um, What's your view? Is what Dan's saying that actually as long as you listen to the communities and are not ideologically driven but evidence-driven, you will find solutions or do you actually think that communities are ideological they've got different political views and therefore advocacy work is going to be in some way or form political well Um, i i'm fundamentally a democrat and i believe in the democratic process so i don't think we're anti-democratic i think our job to to your first point we're absolutely as dan has said reflecting back what we hear and i think the solutions to many issues we're trying to deal with will not be addressed by government they'll be addressed locally on the ground people who know the real world and will have practical solutions as to how they might go about that but i really struggle with some of the north american models i really struggle with very wealthy people using their own money to fund a particular view particularly a big political view, I think that's fundamentally problematic from an anthropic perspective and actually problematic to the sector because that's not what we should be about. We're not about my personal view or my personal wealth. In fact, the work we do is an embodiment of the lack of power, the lack of influence amongst people in society who are overlooked. We're trying to give voices to people who are overlooked. I think philanthropy should be doing that. It should be bringing forward voices that are not heard. It shouldn't be reinforcing voices that are already very loud in the powerful. But is there a danger of trying to do two things that are intentioned simultaneously? On the one hand, actually wanting to give up power and make sure that voices of the less powerful, say, are heard, but at the same time having to assert your own power in order for those voices to be heard through campaigning. We're aggregating voice. And actually, when we talk to those we fund, one of the things, and we ask them, we do a biannual survey, we've done three of these now, we ask them what they think about us, about our grant-making practice and about what they want us to do. Without question, they want us to use what we learn from what they tell us and advocate it nationally. They want us to do that. Because they recognise that it's like the big advert we used to have on TV in the UK with the polar bear and the ant. You know, <laughs> these guys are just the ants, individually. We can collectively make them a huge number of ants. They can shout at the polar bear, and the polar bear is the state. And the state will listen, because we have a state in Britain that knows it's got some huge social issues and doesn't have solutions. So if we can be solution-focused and we can get our solutions based on what we learn from what we fund, we think we add value to the democratic process. And and just add that, I mean, I I was a kind of policymaker in government for a lot of my career before coming into the charitable 
sector. And I now look back with kind of slightly sadness that we didn't talk enough to foundations or foundations didn't want to talk to us about all the knowledge they had. So, for instance, there were issues to do with the welfare policy. We would talk to some of the small charities about what they were finding and what the experience on the ground was of some of the changes we'd made and whether they were really affecting things in the way we thought. And that was very useful. But actually, I now realise there are quite a lot of foundations funding an awful lot of these organisations who knew a hell of a lot. They didn't put themselves forward to us, so we didn't listen to them. And I think we missed out. So I, I think actually the whole world of policymaking at national level, at local level, within health service, everything else would be massively benefited by talking to the funders. But they've got to want to do it. Mm. And how would that work in practice? How would they identify which funders to work with? Would there be a, a pecking order where the funders that may be more committed to evidence base and to democratic conversation would be heard more? Who would make those assessments in order to foster the conversations between Well, as a, as a policymaker, you always have to sift all the sorts of information you get as to, as to whether it's evidence-based uh, or not. Um, so you, you would... But again, I mean, picking up Paul's point, the thing that, that we wanted to know when we were making some of these welfare changes, particularly about single parents and so forth, you know, we got the theory about how it should work. We wanted to know on the ground, was it actually working like that in real time? And it was the charities who knew, but it was quite hard to get to them. There's a few national ones, but actually there was a lot of spread around. There were, I now realise in retrospect, there were funders who knew quite a lot and could have fed back in real time. So the evidence ones are more important. I gave single parents as an issue. Obviously, there were some organisations saying, what are you doing trying to get more single parents into work? This is terrible. They shouldn't be out to work. And others said it was great. So there was ideology there. But that's not really what policymakers wanted to know. They wanted to know what's actually happening. Has this change we've made, which we thought would lead to this, that and the other, is it leading to that? Or is there some great flaw? Organisations out on the ground, they know that. And the funders who are funding them, they know it pretty damn quick. Paul, got anything you'd add? I think you're right. We're a fantastic source of intelligence, but as a funder, it doesn't mean you need to invest in how you mine that. Because a lot of this data is soft, and what the state wants is really hard data. We've got a mix of data, so we have hard outcome data, but mostly the data that comes through is the soft data. And that's the stuff that is really valuable and very hard to distill. And actually, that's why, I mean, you asked me the question earlier, is this distraction from my grant making? It costs 10% of our budget to fund our policy influencing work, but we think it's a very good investment. If we can use that to make life better for not just the people who the organisations are trying to reach, but the organisations themselves, by reflecting back to those who have power, what they think and what some of the solutions might be. And talking of reflecting back to those who have power, there's a truism in philanthropy that to the philanthropic power isn't always heard because people are afraid to express it. How do you make sure in the work that you do, Dan, with foundations that you advise and you uh, with the grantees you work with that those voices are heard uh, and what do you think needs to be done? Yeah, but if you mean the, the kind of voices of the grantees themselves, I mean, you know, one of the fascinating things for us at NPC is working with both sides of the, the charitable world, the funders and those who receive the funding. And it's very clear those that receive it are often very reluctant to say back to the funders what they really think. And you sometimes meet the charity and it's got funding from three different sources who all want different reporting on different timescales. And, you know, you say to them, why did you never go to the three of them and say, look, this is how we're going to measure things. This is what how we're going to report. Is this all right for all three of you? They very rarely do that. They're very, very nervous about doing it. They don't moan if they get a sort of one-year grant when, in fact, it's worse than useless, really, because they don't want to harm anyone. And charities, you know, they behave in weird ways with the corporate sector. They'll take volunteers doing some useless job just because they hope one day they'll get some money off the corporate. So I, don't, I often think funders don't quite realise what a massive impact they're having on the way the charitable sector. We, we've got a big uh, story in the UK at the minute about Oxfam. One of the things that that's all part of is, is governance, whether the governance was correct. 
charities are very reluctant to ask foundations for the kind of core funding that Paul was asking to use for things like governance. And clearly they're all going to have to improve their expenditure on safeguarding now, quite rightly so. They know most funders, most philanthropists, most foundations won't give you, quite frankly, a grant to strengthen your governance, even though that's crucial for you being a successful organisation. Zoom Lloyds Bank Foundation are an exception to that. How, coming back to my earlier question, how can you ensure that actually foundations' behaviour changes in this regard, if indeed it should? Changes in respect of, of remind me of. The kinds of grants that Dan is talking about, grants to improve those aspects of charities' work that is not so easily fundable, such as to improve governance um, standards. I think funders can, but I think funders, one of our concerns would be if every funder offered this, we just compound the problem for the organisations that we're funding, because then they'd have to look at our offer, they look at ESME offers, they look at PHF offer. So it's something about how, how funders can coordinate. We will, part of the research that we're talking about was commissioned because we're about to launch our own strategy later in the year, and as part of that, one of the things we're looking to do is work more closely with other funders, because there are other the funders that are just around the corner from here, we've got Esme Fairbairn, they're experts in social investment, we're not. Some of the charities we fund will probably really value that kind of support. So we're interested in can we work with funders who have expertise in other areas and bring them in as part of a suite of stuff that coordinates itself. But to your starting point, which is where I wanted to head actually, was this thing about the imbalance you're talking about, Charles, is really tricky. And the way we tackle this is twofold. One is we build personal relationships with the organisations. So that is face to face. It's not all done by paper. We visit all the charities that we fund regularly and we increase fund them for six years and if you fund somebody for six years your relationship starts to change because they could begin to have an honest relationship with you and in terms of the stuff we do outside the grant the conversation we will have is what are the major issues facing you Charles in your organization let's support you on a six-year journey if one of them is income diversification let's think about a suite of stuff we can do over that six-year period to help to get you to a very different place in six years or whether it's governments or safeguarding so it begins to change the conversation because it's a longer-term relationship so in order to answer the question about what makes an effective foundation it seems that you're saying that actually that long-term relationship is important. The ability to advocate both with and on behalf of foundations is important. Yeah. But that it's a, it's takes a, time. It's a very virtuous circle because what that also means is that we increasingly spend less time in assessment and more time in helping them think through how they get better at what they do, which is actually what we should be doing. You know, what are your monitoring evaluation systems like? Can we bring in another partner to help if that's what you want to do? So you just begin to change the relationship qualitatively and you become, I think, partners too strong. I mean, clearly we're the one with the money and they're not. So that, that imbalance is very real. But you do begin to build a kind of partnership with an organisation which also means that they will also then give you the kind of information that they want it to shout out on their behalf to government and powers that be. And then Dan if I can just turn to you and ask you the question about philanthropy infrastructure and our next issue but one is looking at philanthropy infrastructure in the UK we're seeing an emerging philanthropy infrastructure with advisory bodies consultancies such as yours but also the role that the Association for Charitable Foundations plays here in actually developing its policy voice, representing foundations. Are there things that they can or should be doing, in your view, more of? I think there's a lot to be desired in the Lansbury infrastructure we have. I mean, it's a difficult sector. It's got some sort of really ambitious foundations, and Paul runs one of them, who are trying to think quite hard about what they do and change their behaviours and so forth. And you have an awful lot of small traditional ones who basically do just dish out the grants in a very responsive mode. You try and look at their website to find even what they fund. It's almost impossible. I think the sector has some responsibility to try and raise the kind of bar so that people who set up foundations are at least trying to do some stuff minimally well mm. and I don't think we have that I think it's a difficult sector to lead some of the foundations in the UK work together and do try and kind of push each other on and work together like Paul suggested but an awful lot don't and I think we should we should push that more I would like to see a bit more leadership from the ACF. 
I think that's a clear message that hopefully in a future podcast we might be taking to them that ask for their views. I'd just like to end with one question on trust. There's been a lot of debate globally but also in the UK about institutions of society and the extent to which they're trusted. And clearly philanthropic institutions, if they become more powerful forces in advocacy and campaigning in the kind of ways you're proposing, they're going to require the trust not just of their grantees but of wider society. And unfortunately, as you've seen recently, there have been some challenges to foundations, gender pay gaps, support at the Welcome Trust, a very prominently reported gala dinner, the President's Club dinner, where very prominent philanthropists from the city and from our communities were maybe involved in practice that was questionable at best. How do you think trust can be improved in the philanthropic sector in light of these kinds of events? And how well, important I, is it that yeah. it is? I mean, I do, I do think one of the things that's happened to the charitable sector here in the last few years has been people discovering things about charities which have made them, have shocked them in different ways. We've had chief executive pay of charities being too high. We've been the way they fundraise from the public or in fancy black tie dinners and so on. And I think there may be a time when the, the sort of philanthropic sector casts the spotlight on it as well. And that is a danger of the things I was talking about before. I'm very strong for foundations doing a little bit more advocacy and lobbying. But when they do do it, and some of them in the UK have found this, there's organisations that have wanted to fund, for instance, groups that are helping migrants and so forth. And that hasn't always gone down well with all our press. And the foundations have found themselves on the front of newspapers and didn't like it. And then they've tried to sort of say, who are the trustees of these people? Where did they come from? What right have they got? How big is their house? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's to some extent inevitable. And if you don't like it, if you just want to be quiet and hide under the table and just give a few grants out, you won't change the world, but you won't take any risks. But I would hope a lot of people who are philanthropists, and certainly a lot we work with, they want to take some risks. They want to make the world a better place for certain beneficiary types. And they want to advocate for them. And they know saying more, being a bit louder, means the spotlight will come on them at some point. And they're willing to risk it. I understand that not everyone will. Paul, I'd like to give you the last word. Trust. I think fundamentally it's about transparency. Dan has said that. You look at a lot of foundations, you won't even know who they fund or where they fund or what they fund. I mean, that's not transparent. And if you're not going to be transparent, then you're open up to accusations of being secretive and therefore not trusted. So I think the more you can be transparent about what you do and why you do it, if you're influencing, the more you be transparent about where the voices that you're echoing are coming from, the more credible you'll be as a spokesperson. Charities are subject to all the ills of society in general. We're not a bunch of saints. All the issues that happen in any organisation, any public organisation, will happen in charities. But actually, the best defence is to be transparent, I think, in the way we operate. And sadly, the foundation world is not very transparent in general. Generally, it's a secretive world and that's not really very helpful well thank you and on that note i think we will be continuing the conversation and it's all we've got time for today but thank you to dan corey from new philanthropy capital and paul streets from lloyd's bank foundation for your provocations both in the paper and today for more please do see the hashtag more than grants and of course if you don't already subscribe to alliancemagazine.org for essential reading and listening for the philanthropy sector we'll be back soon with reaction to what you've heard and we'll be asking whether the foundations are indeed as guilty as charged or whether actually there is some real potential and room for improvement until then thank you and goodbye